We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Work, family, friends, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit the reset button. That's when you reach for an ice-cold Coors Light, the beer that's made to chill. Listen, there's a lot going on in Green Bay right now, and I feel like we could all use a moment to chill with a Coors Light. See, Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Perfect for a moment to unwind. Coors Light is what I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in their all-new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, and as always, celebrate. Twenty minutes a day, three hundred sixty-five days a year. This is the Pack a Day podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five hundred and sixty-five of the Pack a Day podcast. I am your host, Andy Herman. You can always follow me on Twitter at Andy Herman NFL. Today we continue our season in review series, and we're going to be looking at the coaching staff in whole today. And joining me to do so is a very special guest. He is a Packers beat writer and an award-winning journalist for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and PackersNews.com. Previously, he was a Cincinnati Bengals beat writer for the Cincinnati Inquirer. He was a sports journalist for OnMilwaukee.com. My guest is the one and only Jim Ozarski. Jim, thank you so much for joining me. I know there's no real downtime covering the Packers and football in general, but if there's a lighter time, I know it's now, so I appreciate you uh, talking to me and taking the time out uh, during kind of this little bit of a, a lighter time, if you will. Thanks for taking the time. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. So one of the reasons, uh, I've wanted to have you on for a while, but one of the reasons I was really geeked to have you on this week is because you just wrote a absolutely tremendous article, and I'm not saying that just because you're my guest. I'd be nice to you no matter what, but the article was absolutely tremendous, one of my favorite articles of the season because it really truly gave a behind-the-scenes look at how Matt LaFleur built this culture in Green Bay. The article is entitled Building a Brotherhood, How Matt LaFleur's Packers Changed Their Culture. It was a fantastic article, and of course, got the uh, rap sheet endorsement as he retweeted it as well, which is always amazing. Uh, walk us through a little bit, first of all, how you kind of came up with this idea for the article and kind of how it came to fruition. Yeah, so basically, 
this the, the idea of it, I guess, was planted by the players back in May. So the first time that we got to see them and be around them during the camps. And what I mean by that is, you know, no one was going to be specific or, you know, hyperbolic, but I was getting a sense even then, Andy, that these guys were feeling some kind of way about the head coach, about themselves, um, you know, just little, little hints that, you know, the chemistry was good, that they were buying in. And so basically that early I just decided, you know, I, I don't know where this is going to go, um, but I know good chemistry when I see it, when I hear it. So I just started kind of cataloging stuff, jotting stuff down. If people do go and read it, um, thank you, by the way. Like you'll see it hopefully um, a year's worth of detail in there, Andy. And, yeah, you know, I so – Obviously, once they get out to the start they did, you realize, okay, they're going to make the playoffs. <laughs> and then as you get to the end of the year when they're very legitimate Super Bowl contenders, um, you know, obviously at that point you're like, okay, this has to be written. And now it's just a matter of is it the week of the Super Bowl or is it going to be, you know, maybe a week or two after the, their season ends. So, um, But really it started with the players. Um, and we've written about it, touched on it a couple times throughout the year, but – to, to dive into it this way, um, obviously we felt it kind of had to be an after-the-season thing. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I want to rewind just a little bit because I'm curious your initial impressions. One of the things you did hit on in the article uh, was the complacency that Mark Murphy talked about kind of from the – the previous couple seasons on how things maybe got a little bit complacent, but I'm curious your impression of Matt LaFleur when he first came in, uh, maybe that initial press conference, and did you see this as something that could happen, or did this season kind of catch you by surprise? Um, no, I, I mean, I guess as a as a result, it was a surprise. I mean, I people can go look. I thought 8-8, eight and eight, um, maybe 10-6, and because that's, I mean, you know, a couple plays here there from – so I thought they overachieved, and I think a lot of these guys, they're not going to say that, but to a degree, I think you can read between the lines in this piece, Andy, that they really feel this sort of off-the-field bond. They created this belief they had in the head coach, kind of helped them hit their ceiling, if you will. So now, so no, I guess in a way I did not expect that. Um, I think that's something you can't count on. Uh, obviously he was hired to do it. Um, it was funny, Mark Murphy – so, you know, I asked him about this exactly, and he says, well, you always hope. He's like, I had hope. And at the end of the day, like, for as confident as he was in January, and, like, this is the – I mean, you don't know, right? right? And, and Which you can admit after the fact that you hope it goes well. So all those things – and I think that's why they let Matt LaFleur take down pictures of old Packers and change the paint and – do all that stuff because I think if if you were hiring a head coach to do that and that that's part of his plan, then I think you have to let him roll with it. And clearly, it struck a chord with these guys, um, you know, in 2019. Yeah, it's, and it's funny you say that. So my day job is as a recruiter in human resources, and I can't tell you how many times that I've hired people and I'm like, this guy's going to be or this girl's going to be amazing, and they're not, and vice versa. You might be like. Uh, I think we got this one okay, and they end up being, you know, total rock stars. So it's always a very tough thing to, you know, try to decide in an interview. Now, obviously, these are people, the, the Packers HR was involved. They had the president. They had uh, the GM and, 
and Brian Gutekunst. There were a lot of very smart people uh, in that room making this decision. Uh, but that kind of transitions me to the the next qu- uh, you know question, I guess, is one of the great quotes that you had in this, I thought, was from Brian Bulaga. And he said, it was just something about the way his first talk went. You left the room believing. So he obviously had this ability to make first impressions. He made that first impression with Brian Gutekunst and Russ Ball and Mark Murphy in that initial interview, so much so that they hired him basically the next day. Uh, He made that impression with the players. Uh, Did you kind of gather any additional information, whether it be from Brian Bulaga or anything else, of what exactly it is that he's able to kind of make that lasting first impression? Um, no, you know, what's funny about that is no one, you know, and, and these are, I guess are, um, because they're players and, and I, I guess not that their memory isn't great, but right. that no one had like a, a line or a phrase, <laughs> if you will. Um, cause I did ask about that speech. I mean, even going back in May and no one, none of the guys could say like one thing in particular. Um, I think probably because it was a 20 minute <laughs> deal um you know but th- that was kind of the feeling it was just his manner which i think if fans hear this and and remember his initial press conference i mean i don't know if anyone sat there and thought wow this guy elicits confidence and he can command a room i mean he was really nervous you know um and, and he still isn't super polished behind the mic i mean whatever that's worth but i mean obviously in, in front of his guys when it's talking football and being a, 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 I guess, leader of men in that way, yeah, they they bought in. And, yeah, I, I, honestly, if I if I had a couple lines from that speech, I definitely would have put it in there. But the guys um, just, they, they couldn't, it, you know, it was the general talking points, the team and play for one another, and, and only that he had, like, three rules to de- to not break, you know. And um, so that I got in there, but it was just sort of, the I guess, his, his manner that really struck them. Yeah, and I think that makes so much sense because if you watch Matt LaFleur, at least to to my naked eye, uh, it, it seems to me, like you said, he's not the most polished behind the microphone. You see some of his, his post-game speeches to the team. They're a slightly disjointed, not in any bad way, but I think the thing that strikes me about it is it's a, it's slightly awkward, but you can also tell it's a million percent genuine. And I think that has to resonate with the players that, yeah, you know, maybe it's not this politician speak where he can give an immaculate, uh, amazing speech, but it, it's genuine. It's from the heart, and you can tell that he truly means it. And like I said, it seems like that resonates with the players. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, authenticity uh, and, and genuineness is, um, I mean, they are two two words, you know. And then even as, as it, it trickled down into the locker room, I mean, I, I don't know how many guys use the word genuine or use the word authentic um, in describing how they felt or how they came together. And clearly the head coach, I think, sets that tone. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, he's not, you know, he's not in the locker room. You know, that's the player's domain. Um, on a, you know, but obviously they're in the meetings, they're in the practices, and, and whatever messages need to be communicated. So you're right. I think they all got that from him and definitely respect that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, a big piece of this article was, of course, changing that culture. That's, of course, in the in the le- or in the headline of the article as well. Uh, one of the things that you brought up was kind of bringing the Packers into the 21st century, upgrading the lounge, new music, the messaging app, player videos, a better stadium experience, a, a better social media effort, rotating captains, all these sorts of things that really tried to bring in this new culture, set uh, set a, a level and a standard for what they were going to do as an organization. But all of 
that seem to kind of be related around focusing on the players and, again, building that brotherhood. Uh, can you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it, you know, it's kind of interesting how that type of thing, when it's new, can matter. You know what I mean? Like, the things you read off, I mean, some people can, like, roll their eyes because maybe we do all that on a regular basis. And, like, I think when it's not <laughs> – I think when it's not there, um, like, the the music or the, the app to create – or the videos, like, it's – it's, that's – Andy, that's, like, the funniest thing about this is, like, on each little thing by itself – could elicit an eye roll, could elicit or could have someone say that's corny or someone can say, how does that affect winning? And here's the funny thing. Almost all the players I talk to acknowledge that fact. Right. <laughs> I mean, no, for sure. And, and, and yet they also acknowledge that it was very important. So, yeah, like all those things are um, – now he's got to continue it. You know, we'll see 2020 and beyond. You know, you, you only have a first time for everything. <laughs> right? So for the new guys, it'll be new. And for the old guys, it'll be, you know, how do you keep it fresh and keep it rolling? But, um, yeah, I mean, that, that type of stuff is, I mean, clearly it was needed, you know. Um, and, and we'll see where this goes. But Mark Murphy was at least right in, in that regard. Yeah, and it seemed like one of the other big things uh, and one of the other big takeaways for me was, you know, not only – how much Matt LaFleur and the, the culture he created mattered to this season, but it was also some of the veterans really taking on that leadership mantle, uh, you know, and, and of course how quickly Zadarius Smith seemed to matter to these players. Aaron Rodgers showing up at some of these events certainly seemed to matter. Uh, the the players showing up more at the, the bowling event and Matt LaFleur showing up at the, the, the softball game, all those sorts of things seemed to matter. How, how important was it that not only did you have this new coach coming in, but you had players like Adrian Amos most Preston Smith, Zadarius Smith, not only come in, make an impact, but have that buy-in along, right along with Matt LaFleur. Yeah, no, that was – I mean, at the end of the day, it is about winning on the field. So the coach can be amazing, but if the guys aren't into it or believe in one another, then it, you know, it goes, it goes in the toilet. I mean, I, I know in Cincinnati where I used to work, I, I still know people there. I know that – Zach Taylor improved the culture after Marvin Lewis. Um, guys get along. It's very similar stories out of that locker room. However, they were 2-14, and 14, right? So, yep. you know, at the end of the day, it's still about, you know, getting it done on the field and the players and your really good players playing well and believing in one another. So, um, yes, let, let's start with the, the, the four guys real quickly. Um, I didn't touch on them a ton in this piece, because I think a lot of that has been known, um, you know, Zadarius walking in, I mean, as the highly paid guy, you know, the man. So he walked in with that mantle already given to him, and then it was what is he going to do with it. And the fact that he was outgoing and pushed it and, you know, Rogers, I, I don't know if this quote made it in there, but basically said his personality and the way he managed – guys is he's like he he got guys out of their shells rogers even said like i did more things because zadarius was there kind of pushing um so that can't be underscored now that said the reason i led the piece or at least the player piece with rogers is because at the end of the day it's that guy right and that was the question and he showed up him and zadarius showed up at this bowling event and again on the surface it sounds so trivial but it blew guys away. 
Like, that was one quote that didn't make it was Aaron Jones was like, it started there. Aaron walked in. It's like, wow. You know, and Kenny Clark, not everyone was like that, you know, in terms of Amos is doing stuff. Billy Turner is doing stuff. Tremont is around. Kenny Clark's around. You know, and, and now no one, and I know I'm rambling here, but no one would name anybody. But many of the guys say the big names in the past didn't come to this. Now, we can theorize who that is. I mean, a lot of these were four-year guys, so, you know, everyone can go to pro football reference and see <laughs> who they consider the big names are. But um, clearly something broke down there in the tail end of McCarthy's tenure, even after it run the table, where the stars, the leaders, the guys with presence just didn't do this stuff. And this year they did. And it started with the quarterback in April. He bought in early. Um, showed it to his teammates early. And he, I mean, I, I can't speak to the past, Andy. I don't know. No one was going to go there about his involvement with stuff. So I'm not, I can't speak on what I don't know. But I, what I do know is this year it happened. And this year it definitely mattered to his teammates. Yeah, and again, not to name names, but you got to think uh, a few of those names on the list are people that are probably not with the franchise any longer, yes. would be my guess. Yes. Um, you brought up a, a great point uh, with Zach Taylor and how he, he changed the culture, uh, but it, it wasn't exactly a successful season, and I think he still has some work to do, I'm sure. I'm obviously not a, uh, you know, a Bengals aficionado, but uh, I'm sure he still has some work to do to kind of get that full buy-in because the results you know, weren't entirely there. To me, one of the absolute biggest wins of this season isn't necessarily the fact that they got to the, the NFC Championship. Obviously, those things are great, but the biggest win is that they were able to get those early wins. They were able to get success. Matt LaFleur was able to get the buy-in from his players, the, the stars on this team, if you will, the Aaron Rodgers, the Zadarius Smiths, and now he has the ability to kind of set in motion what he really wants to do. And I think the, the, the people in the front office have that faith and that trust in him to allow him the, the not necessarily a blank check, but the ability to kind of have that, that free will to do what he wants to do and the players are hopefully going to continue to buy in. To me, that's the biggest victory of this entire season. Yeah, I mean, you know, Kenny Clark said it, you know, that first win um, meant everything, you know. And uh, we mentioned Cincinnati. I mean, they lost by one point on the road in Seattle week one, get blown out by the 49ers week two, and they don't sniff a victory for, what, 11 weeks? Right. I mean, who's to say? Like, and the guys noticed that. They, they, they all said that. Like, the close wins, um, they were wins, you know, and – at the end, it's 13-3, and three. it's an NFC title trip, and yes, now there's skins on the wall. So the players who are returning in 20 made the validation, if you want to call it that. They got the validation. Hey, we did this. Maybe I had to sacrifice. Maybe I didn't like all of it or the offense or the schemes, blah, 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 blah. But it worked. I mean, one game away from the Super Bowl. And then the new guys coming in, um, basically are going to fall in line with that. I mean, it's kind of how football works to a degree. I mean, as long as, you know, 55, 12, 91, you know, all those guys, 23, still roll with the coach in this way, then, you know, no one's going to question that. So you're right. Um, now Matt LaFleur, now we'll see, you know, they made a, he made a lot of compromises on offense to make the incumbents feel good and comfortable. Now let's see what happens in year two 
that they presumably are comfortable and and where does he take it now? I think he's got a little more juice to, to be able to do that. And I thought you had a fantastic quote in the article. You said, maintaining and handling success are arguably much tougher than first reaching it. And I think that's going to be the really fun challenge of year two. And I brought this up uh, a couple weeks ago is, you know, Matt Nagy just uh, last, you know, two seasons ago, you know, set the world on fire in Chicago. Uh, second year, not so much. And again, the big difference there is, of course, you know, Mitch Trubisky to Aaron Rodgers. But I still think it's relevant. You know, you can really hit the ground running and have a ton of success year one, but repeating that success is a lot harder. Without a doubt. And, and you know, I'm glad you brought up Chicago. Um, I know Packers fans like, ah, whatever. But here, here's the funny thing. So I know – I don't know as many players or coaches down there, but t- talking to a lot of the writers who are in that locker room, they basically said the, the reason the Bears finished 8-8 eight and eight, um, and didn't totally crater this year when they probably could have was because of the – chemistry and the play for one another and all that all that good stuff Nagy and his coaches built up two years ago, that carried through. So while they had injuries and bad quarterback play and all that other stuff, I mean, you know, the way they look at it is they win week one in, in Green Bay in another, you know, close game and they're, you know, they're in a 10-win team again. So I, I think that's a lesson, if you will, um, in how chemistry can help you not just reach your ceiling, but maybe prevent you from totally bottoming out. If there are injuries or some adversity, um, I, I think in Chicago that's um, it's a good example, I think, to, to look back on as, as we go to see, okay, is how sustainable was this in Green Bay? Because you know, Andy, guys are going to get hurt, right? Yep. They're going to lose a couple – close games. That's just, that's math. You know, it's, it, I mean, Los Angeles Chargers from two years ago to last year, that's what happened. So um, we'll see, you know, if this base they built can, can kind of sustain them a little bit. Yeah, it's a fantastic point, and we're going to hear the word regression a lot this offseason, I'm sure, when it comes to the Packers because of those close wins, because they didn't have the injuries. But I think, uh, you know, one of the things, again, that stood out in the article uh, that and that you bring up here, again, is that foundation that they built. And hopefully that foundation that they built is strong enough to kind of withhold some of those uh, issues going forward when, when some of those things do hit. And that, that was one of my favorite things of this season as well, and one of the things that stood out to me. And that's the last thing I kind of wanted to ask you, too. And I'll is basically what what were maybe a couple of things that really stood out to you from this Matt LaFleur season. But I had three in particular. I'll, I'll kind of go first. And you hit on one of them in the article, and that was when he uh, chewed out Dexter Williams after a play when he completely biffed it. It was to start a practice, and I couldn't tell if it was because he botched the play at the end or because he did something totally wrong uh, on the route that he was supposed to be running. But one of the things that I saw with Matt LaFleur early is that he seemed to lean on the side of being a little bit of a player's coach. You know, he had the music player, and there was the competitive of periods. Everyone was up in spirits, but I really wanted to see how he was going to be able to balance that with calling out players when they didn't do their job, because I think that's always a really tough thing, is balancing being a player's coach, but then coming down hard when you need to, and he demonstrated to me early and often, especially with that Dexter Williams call out, right at the beginning of practice, he was massively fired up. Uh, called him out, got on him, pulled him out of practice, and that was just one of uh, a few different instances that happened, and again, you hit on a couple of those within the article. Another one was when 
when Rodgers and, and LaFleur had their first kind of on-field spat, and, and somebody, of course, asked him about asked LaFleur about it in the locker room uh, immediately after the game. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but he had a great response. He started with by saying, oh, you, you guys didn't hear. I, uh, we're not talking to each other anymore. He made, made light of it, then went on to compliment Rodgers, basically saying, you know, I want that guy on my sidelines, the guy that's passionate and fired up and is you know, pissed off because he didn't convert the third down uh, or we didn't convert the third down. I want that guy on my team. And then, you know, kind of went on to of how some things that they could do differently going forward, took some responsibility on himself. But that first kind of, you know, bumping of heads, if you will, at least publicly, uh, I thought he handled that to perfection. And then last but not least, it's, it's easy to come in with all the momentum in the world when you've got a new head coach, a new coaching staff, you bring in four high-priced free agents, you bring in three top 50 draft picks, Hope was springing eternal, and rightfully so. I wanted to see how this team was going to respond when they had their first loss. And you have that loss to Philadelphia. You lose Devontae Adams. And it was still, to me, the same team. You had, uh, you know, the Smiths still doing their duo, you know, conference together. You had this loose, you know, team, and they were able to come back and win a week later. And they never lost back-to-back games all season long, which I thought was indicative of the culture that he put in as well. So those were a few of mine. I was, I was curious if you had any moments this season that just kind of stood out to you uh, from Matt LaFleur uh, as a whole? Yeah, the, um, you know, obviously I do have one with the quarterback, and that was the uh, public back and forth where Aaron, (laughs) the day that he really decided to just go in on the joint practices and how, how much he did not care for them, and then Matt LaFleur basically says, well, uh, this is about 90 guys, not just one, so I think they're good. And then <laughs> the quarterback, the next time we talked to him, was like, oh, like Matt and I were joking. It's all, Like, I mean, basically it was, you know, that that's how this, you know, I know Mike McCarthy got to a point where he was saying he's not going to do this in public, you know, and he's not going to do the back and forth in press conferences. Uh, which I can respect that as well, but I, I, I don't think Matt was in a situation where he could do that his first year, unfortunately. And I thought, I mean, to your point, I think he handled that type of stuff really well. Yeah, the, um, the, the I would say the overall humility in his manner, um, whether it be off the field with the celebration. So, for instance, the first time we saw the defense celebrate a turnover was in the Hudson Center. And we asked Matt about it afterwards, and he he said he didn't particularly care for it. It's not what he wants to be about. And then that went away. Clearly the guys said, this is what we want to do. It's important to us, and he rolled with it, right? You know, clearly his initial reaction was, I don't know how I feel about this. And was like, okay, um, I'm going to check that for the the greater good of my guys. And then also on the field, you alluded to it there after the loss. Um, You know, he wasn't stubborn. You know, I realized going into Dallas that that outside zone isn't going to work, you know, so let's let's change it. Um, and, and all the little things, you know, Jimmy Graham can't run around, so you know what, maybe he should just run straight down the field, <laughs> you know. And it, it, stuff like that where clearly it, the, the offense was bent and, and t- twisted and, you know, molded around other things, I think, uh, rather than kind of trying to jam what he wanted to do, um, it was it was about the win the game in front of you, regardless of how it makes me look as a quote unquote play caller, offensive designer. Um, 
I thought that humility overall was was pretty impressive for um, you know while keeping that strength. You know what I mean? Like that sure. was to not lose anybody while doing it. Um, I don't know. I, I thought that was how could we know that going in? And I thought that was pretty telling. Yeah, I think it certainly was as well, and I think he he did overall a tremendous job, and it's going to be really fun to see what he can do in his second season. Uh, we'll fast forward to kind of the rest of the coaching staff. Obviously, I wanted to spend the majority of the time on Matt LaFleur, uh, specifically with, uh, again, the article that you put together. I want to touch base on Mike Patton quickly. You went from week one to we got a defense to some of the struggles in the second half, the successful end of the season against maybe some iffier quarterbacks and iffier offenses, and then really a, a nightmare kind of last six quarters, the two against Seattle in the second half that they were able to kind of get away with and then of course the game against San Francisco you know two kind of questions for you did you ever get the feel that Mike Penton's job was ever seriously in jeopardy and uh, if not or either way you know how big of a season upcoming is this for Mike Penton? No I didn't think his job was in jeopardy I mean I get that Monday or that day when we asked Matt and he was like oh, I don't know we're evaluating uh, I was on local radio shortly after that and it was the Mike Penton obituary hour, and I just I'm like, nah, I'm not I'm not feeling it, guys. Like it, so I think. Now that said, I think he has no more leash. Um, so in 2018, I thought he coached his ass off um, with very little talent on defense. Um, I you know I thought he had good game plans. I was like, wow, okay, if this guy can get some players. Um, We'll see what he can do. So he gets some players in 2019. And, you know, I, I mean, look, man, what was it? Were they? I don't have the stats in front of me any, but were they a top 10 uh, scoring defense? Yeah, I think they ended up in the top 10. I think you're right. Uh, so that's what I'm about. Like, I, I know there's metrics. Um, I know people do, like, total defense and sacks. I'm about you keep points off the board, and you're ninth in football. Like, that's really good from what they were a year ago and what they were two years ago when they brought him, you know, when the reason they brought him in. Now, now that said, I think when I say the leash is gone, I think the lack of, you know, the, the San Francisco to San Francisco thing definitely hurts because you have your players saying we didn't adjust, we weren't ready, we couldn't handle, like, that's not good. You know what I mean? Right. So you can only handle, like, I think you only can take so many of those bullets, and and, and he's taken all of those, right? So um, I think Jerry Gray being on staff is, I think it's quite legitimate to say, all right, well, you kind of wondered who would call plays if this guy gets whacked in week five. Like, well, there it is. So now I I know you, we wanted to move quickly here, but I do want to bring this up because I'm going to write about this this soon and we've touched on it. so Andy remember the 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 and I wrote about it too in the playoffs the ro- the roving thing of Zadarius Smith yes for right sure. and moving it around okay so he's properly complimented for that now there's a one of the reasons for that <laughs> was remember Montrevious Adams was supposedly his most improved player yeah, I, I tweeted that out this week as well. He it, Not only was he um, Patton's most improved player, I had Kenny Clark on the podcast uh, in during training camp, or before training camp. Actually, it was right before uh, Mike Daniels got cut, and I asked him who his uh, most improved player was as well uh, going into training camp and the player to keep an eye out for, and he said Adams as well. So uh, there was right. a lot of that going around. Okay. So now he he got hurt, you know, but 
he didn't take that step they thought they were going to get from him. So now you're you're rolling you're leaning on Tyler Lancaster, who's a nice kid. He's a solid. I mean, I think he proved he can be a pro. But I mean, Matravius Adams is a third round pick, and and I think the reason they cut Mike Daniels, and you, so you don't have that big guy helping you inside against the run. Um, we all know the issues that inside linebacker, but so so we don't need to get into that. But on the back end, so so you have a front end part of run D there, Andy. Um, and then on the back end, um, I, I've got a piece coming soon that I think there's a reason Jerry Gray is here as a, as a DB coach because for as talented as those guys are, they were a weak spot to teams, um, to opponents and coaches, that secondary. You know, Darnell Savage Jr. wasn't always looking in the right spot. Jair no, Alexander not. wasn't always looking in the right spot. Um Kevin King teams took advantage of some of his physical issues with, you know, routes he can cover just at his size. And so what, what ended up happening is, you know, that, you know, the hybrid linebacker thing kind of became, okay, I'm just going to go with five and everybody else has got to cover to kind of mask some of these other issues. So I think at the end of the day, like, Okay, look, maybe maybe Mike, Matt LaFleur's top D coordinator was there and they make a move, but at least for now, I think there's still some coaching elements, some player elements that can be fixed on this defense that they're like, all right, let's tidy this up in camp in the offseason and see where it goes. And that's why I think the leash is, is, is gone now because I think there were still enough kind of weak spots that were picked on Um that Mike Patton couldn't do anything about in season. So yeah. that's why I didn't think he was going to get fired necessarily, but I do think they'll address it, and they have addressed it with Jerry Gray coming in on the back end. Now, if that doesn't work, then I think it's, you know, we're, we're you know, he's a hot seat type of guy. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think it was those lack of adjustments through the season, whether you go from San Francisco to San Francisco or even in-game in San Francisco in the championship game that uh, was really disappointing, you know, to say the least. And I'm glad you brought up Darnell Savage, too, because I thought he was a, a slightly sneaky player that maybe didn't have quite as good of a season as a lot of people thought. I really like Darnell Savage. I think he brings a lot to that secondary. I think he was unquestionably an upgrade uh, from Kentrell Bryce and Haha Clinton Dix and the safety group that they had a season to go, but uh, there were some there were some poor angles, some issues with tackling, like you said, some some eyes in the wrong spots. Certainly, some things that are normal for a rookie safety, and I think he's going to go through those those learning curves, and hopefully, he can improve in season two. But uh, I, I agree. I think that secondary didn't always live up to expectations. Uh, Kevin King ha- has his limitations at times, especially with in breaking routes. And Jair Alexander, for his All Pro, in my opinion, capability doesn't always play to that level, and there doesn't necessarily seem to be a specific rhyme or reason why. Still a very good player, but uh, I think there's still room for growth there, and of course, he just turned 23 today as we're recording this, so there's a lot of opportunity for growth, and I think what Savage is 21-22 as well, so I think you're seeing some of those, you know, youth, uh, some of that youth come out, but hopefully Jerry Gray is able to, to kind of help with some of that and use some of his leadership to, to maybe bring out a little bit more of a veteran presence, and I think Adrian Amos being there certainly helps with that as well. Yeah, for sure. I know that I know we got kind of football-y there for a bit, but I, I do think, and maybe it sounded like an excuse for Petten, but I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, the George Kittle touchdown, um, for instance, that first San Francisco game, I mean, you know, 
Darnell Savage Jr. is not going where he's supposed to be going. You right. know what I mean? Like, it's just, it, you know, that happens. The flea flicker, um, you know, the, the Detroit game at Lambeau, I mean, they they threw it at those guys on purpose because they knew. You know what I mean? So, and that that is what it is. Like, guys are going to get beat, but I think that the Jerry Gray hire, um, you know, I know we'll address some of this maybe later, but, I, I, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that guy specifically was brought in. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, a couple other thoughts. Uh, you know, I, I'll be totally transparent. Special teams is probably one of the things that I have as a, a weak spot in my repertoire. I spend a, a ton of time grading the offense and defense and spend literally zero time looking at the special teams. I know you have an opportunity to, to kind of get in the press conferences with Sean Menenga uh, and, of course, Nathaniel Hackett as well. And I think sometimes it's difficult to, to judge an offensive coordinator when the head coach is the one calling the plays as well. So I think from the outside looking in, some of those things are difficult. Any takeaways that you had this season? from either Hackett or Menenga? Uh, yeah, so no, you're right about the Hackett thing. I mean, it, I mean, Matt LaFleur is the OC to a degree. I do think Nathaniel's a consensus builder. That's the sense I got. He was the guy who I think Matt, who had never worked with him, really trusted getting information from all the other guys and then distilling it down, getting it to the head coach. And then they worked on the game plans together. So, um, I mean, that, quite honestly, is his role. They're, they haven't shied away from that. They don't hide that. Um, you know, the whole, like, he's a great organizer, good communicator. So, I mean, I didn't get a sense that anyone had an issue with that from the coaching staff. Um, the quarterback seemed to, to like him, um, you know, because Hackett's involved with those guys as well. So, um, you know. Yeah, you're right, though. I mean, his, his role is a little diminished r- regarding, like, you know, play calling and, and to that degree. Now, Menenga's interesting because um, he admittedly played everything very conservatively in 2019. Um, you know, he just didn't want the big screw-ups that plagued Ron Zook's group for all those years. Sure. And they got rid of him. You know, penalties were way down. You didn't see touchdown returns. I mean, there was the one... I don't know if it officially went as a block punt because it went forward for eight yards, but you know the, the the LA Chargers game was probably their worst game as a unit um, with penalties and then that block. Um, you know, obviously Crosby was great, but even he admits he doesn't have much to do with that. So, you know, I, I think we'll need to see a little more. Um, you know, Gutekunst handcuffed him by trading Trevor Davis and rolling with Darius Shepard. I mean, that's not Sean Menenga's fault. Right. You know, that they couldn't do – I mean, what what can you scheme up for guys who can't do it? You know, so – and I think we saw once Tyler Irvin showed up that, oh, there's some holes there. There's, there's you know, there's an opportunity for, for that. So um, I think we'll need to see a little more. I think J.K. Scott, for as phenomenal as he looked at times, still needs to get more consistent. And I don't know – man, that's tough. That's like golf, like – I mean, J.K. goes to his own guy. You know what I mean? And so I I don't know. I can't really put that on Menenga, but at the end of the day, you're still the in-house coordinator. So something's got to – you know what I mean? Like I think that's got to get – like J.K. Scott's got to be more consistent in 20, and and we've got to see some some special stuff in 20, in my opinion. But I think Sean Menenga, for what he was brought in to do, was – you know, a solid B coordinator. I mean, they didn't 
it, special teams didn't lose them anything. Whereas last year or 2018, it clearly lost them games. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I think if 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 nothing else, a huge win is just cleaning up those mistakes and making sure that those. Uh, those plays that happened again under the Ron Zook regime, you know, weren't repeated uh, this season. And I think, like you said, outside of a couple instances here or there, I think that really was the case. And I think if, if you're looking at things uh, for a stepping stone moving forward, I think that's a really strong stepping stone to, to take hopefully into a more dominant special teams unit going forward. And that was always the thing with J.K. Scott, too. He had the leg. He had, you know, you would see him punt really well for long stretches of times. Uh, but like you said, it was, it's almost like a golfer who uh, just, you know, loses his swing for for a short period of time where things just go incredibly wrong in, in little spurts for him. And, uh, you know, you would love to see that consistency. I think the worst thing that you can have as a player is inconsistency because as a coach, you have no idea if you're going to get a good J.K. Scott or a bad J.K. Scott on a specific day. So I think that has to get cleaned up as well. But I, I think they put at least, again, that foundation in place to hopefully have a successful special teams moving forward. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. Especially – I mean, Tyler Irvin will be back, I believe, um, but it probably wouldn't hurt to get to give them some, you know, more explosive players back yeah, there. I'd be surprised if they didn't address uh, that receiver core with a few more explosive players. Hopefully, somebody that could help out in the return game as well. But uh, that'll be all good off-season conjecture for sure. Last thought from a coaching standpoint: we touched base, uh, of course, on Jerry Gray quite a bit already. Jason Simmons gone as the defensive back coach. Elvis Witted also gone as a receivers coach. Seemingly, it doesn't seem like you're obviously too surprised by the Jerry Gray hire. But did either of these initial moves surprise you at all? Um, Witted surprised me. Because I don't know, kind of like Menengo with the return game, like what was he supposed to do? Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like I think yeah. he might he might have had to be the guy that fell on the sword for a lack of talent. Um, now maybe they put whatever happened to Marquez Valdez Scantling on his shoulders. Um, you know we don't know the ins and outs of that, but. I think if you look at the 2020 Packers roster on opening day and then compare it to 19, I mean, it's going to be Devontae Adams, Alan Lazard, MVS, and what, three new guys? Four yeah. new guys? Maybe Equinemius St. Brown, maybe. but yeah, Maybe? maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you can – I mean, to me, St. Brown and Lazard are the same guy. Um, you know, so – like whose fault is that then? That that you know what I'm saying? So no, that was sure. a little surprising to me, especially because those receivers bought in. You know, like they gave up. I mean, Jerome Ellison's in a contract year. You know, that guy could have raised all kinds of hell about being a lead blocker most of the time. Um, so I I think that goes. I think that's in Witted's credit that all those guys, you know, gave themselves up for the greater good, if you will. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the drops, I don't, I mean, those were league average total. I mean, that, they didn't have any more than, than most. Um, so that was surprising. Yes. Um, especially as we record this, Andy, they don't have a replacement. So that's right. like, that's even more surprising. I don't, I don't know what, what happened there. Um, Simmons, obviously Mike McCarthy guy, his contract was expiring. You know, he, he chose or they chose when LaFleur was hired to not extend it. So I think, you know, he moved on to Carolina. Good for Jason. Clearly Jerry Gray was hired. Um, I mean, Jerry's been coaching secondary for 20 years. 
He is a hardline, um, you know, no nonsense technician. And so that makes all the sense in the world to bring that kind of guy in for all the things we just talked about a little bit ago. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And I'm, like, like you mentioned earlier, uh, really excited to see what he can do with the, that younger secondary. With guy, you know, not even just the Jairs and the Kings and the Savages, but the guys like Shannon Sullivan and Josh Jackson, who really has a big offseason ahead of him as well. So a ton of talent in that secondary. We'll see if Gray uh, can kind of get what Green Bay Packers front office and fans are hoping that he can get out of them. Uh, Jim, this was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time. I cannot thank you enough. Anything else at all that you'd like to plug on your way out? Uh, no. I, well, we're I, of course, you know that that piece will be up for a while. So head on over. Um, if you're not a subscriber, Andy, I know people seem to hate that idea, but it is only a dollar, and we do do good stuff over at PackersNews.com. There's five of us <laughs> every day. So. Um, and, yeah, you know, our season-ending grades, like anyone else, um, those are up and out. And then, uh, you know, we'll be down at the Combine. So that's just in a couple of weeks. So I, I would say just, you know, head on over. It's worth it. And um, that way you can get, get everything we do. It truly is. I'm a proud subscriber. You guys do tremendous work. I appreciate uh, the professionalism and, uh, you know, just everything that you guys do year in and year out. It's fantastic. It is worth the price. I know, again, like you said, sometimes people don't like uh, the paywall, but, you know, support good journalism, and uh, that's certainly what you're going to get from PackersNews.com. So uh, if you're listening today, please make sure to go out, subscribe. You're going to want to get all the draft stuff from them. You are going to want to get all the off-season news, the free agent signings, and, of course, all the tremendous work that they do in season as well. Jim, thank you so much again. I cannot thank you enough. Make sure to go out and follow Jim on Twitter at Jim Ozarski. That's O-W-C-Z-A-R-S-K-I. And of course, go out and subscribe at PackersNews.com. The work the entire team does is remarkable. And again, I can't recommend subscribing enough. Tomorrow, we will be back with an all-new episode as Jake and Ross review the 2019 draft class. Thank you as always for listening. But until next time, and as always, Go Pack Go! Hi, this is Nick Schmitz, one of the hosts of a Pack-A-Day podcast. Since you're a fan of the Green Bay Packers, you are probably a fan of Friday Night Fish Fries. It's a staple of Wisconsin heritage, and we want to let you know how you can support Friday Night Fish Fries. You can do this through supporting The Farmery. The Farmery is a non-profit aquaponics farm and fish hatchery, and they are excited to launch their state-of-the-art yellow perch fish hatchery in downtown Green Bay. The hatchery will produce fish that aquaculture farmers can grow out and produce for your family's Friday night fish fries. In partnership with the Green Bay Packers and the Greater Green Bay Community Foundation, the Farmery has been selected to receive matching funds as part of Give Big Green Bay, a 24-hour online giving event designed to rally the community around local nonprofits. From noon on Tuesday, February 18th through noon on Wednesday, February 19th, you can make your donation to the Farmery at www.givebiggreenbay.org. The Green Bay Packers and the Greater Greater Green Bay Community Foundation will match every donation, which will provide high-quality learning experiences such as internships, job shadowing experiences, field trips, and community tours of the new facility. Donate online at www.givebiggreenbay.org and search The Farmery.
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.